Hiya, Duncan Green here on a rainy English summer's day, supposedly, um, with the latest roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Just three to talk through this week. The first one was, um, what's, blogging, what's blocking progress in fixing the global water crisis? And this was based on a, a podcast I took part on, on water for development. So it's one of those things where you've got a bunch of people who really are experts on this topic and me. I come in and sort of do kind of um, overview, sort of discussion, sort of informed ignoramus, I think, um, chucking in ideas um, from, from, from the edge. Um, so Michael Wilson, um, who uh, was hosting, uh, was one of the co-hosts with Rosie Ween of the conversation, which was me and Melita Grant, um, asked me, you know, many of the solutions of the crisis on water for development are well known. The, problem is well known endless statistics on you know what the problem is in terms of people's lack of access to water lack of access to sanitation problems of hygiene so what can explain the puzzling inertia that exists in pursuing the sustainable development goals and my answer was i think activists have got a real dilemma and that is that being right is not enough but many activists think that if they are right, that should be enough. And they get very angry that people aren't listening to them. They say, look, look at all these papers, these peer-reviewed journal articles. We're right. Climate change is happening. We need to change the way water is provided. Why aren't you listening? And so one of the things I find useful in terms of trying to understand these drivers of inertia is unpacking it into ideas, interests and institutions. So let's start with interests. If you're a lefty, especially, you often assume that the reason something's not happening is because there's some rich person who's benefiting from the status quo and so is blocking change. Now, that is sometimes true, but probably not as often as lefties think. So I think that let's look at, in, let's look at institutions. Institutions sometimes just don't have procedures that can cope with what you're suggesting. You know, maybe agencies only have five-year time horizons, as do many politicians, and you're saying this has to be a 20-year project. It just doesn't translate into the way that that institution makes decisions. But the more I thought about water and uh, thinking about this question, the more I thought that maybe ideas are one of the really interesting and important blocks. So one of the previous interviewees, this was the last of a series of podcasts, uh, so wrap-up uh, discussion. One of the previous interviews, Mina Guli said, there's no people-focused call to action. There's no North Star. And that phrase, North Star, really stuck with me. Another interviewee, Alison Baker, said too, many, too much has been left to the engineers and the technocrats. You know, people think water and they think boreholes, they think toilets. You know, this is, a, this is stuff for engineers. Um, so I ended up wondering whether it's actually a problem as well as a great thing to have an organisation which is really well recognised as being expert in the field like WaterAid. Because then everybody else says, OK, this is a water issue. Let's just leave it to WaterAid. And you can't build those big coalitions. There's, there isn't a poverty aid or a food aid. And yet you get big coalitions working on those issues and maybe getting bigger impact than if you have a specialist organisation in charge. So that's, uh, that was one thought on, on that issue. Um, and then another one, which, which is sort of related is how do we try and convince people? Because the terrible fact is lots of people don't believe or understand graphs, percentages, research. And if you're not allowed to use graphs or percentages um, in trying to convince those, those sceptical people, what do you do? 
And there I thought I just realized that climate change activism has gone a lot further, I think, or done more thinking on this than water activism. And I'm a big fan of Alex Evans's work. He wrote a book called The Myth Gap and um, argues that if we're going to get serious about climate change, we have to tap into much deeper narratives of the human condition, especially those contained in religious myths, such as stewardship of creation, which is present in all major religions. And if you can tie climate change to those deeper underlying ideas about the human condition, then you're more likely to build a really big, powerful movement. And if you think about water, it's massive in all the world religions. You know, you've got flood myths in the Bible and elsewhere, but also you've got cleansing before prayer, baptism. You know, it's obviously there is this huge place for water in all the major religions. So are water activists saying, OK, so how do we build a narrative around the deep, the deeper placing of water in our lives and build a wider movement based on that? And, and I haven't seen any sign that that's happening yet. So that was just a question for me. And maybe it is but I haven't seen it. And so, you know, is water activism ambitious enough to be thinking on that scale rather than just, you know, who's got the best graph? So those are some thoughts uh, about the whole question of whether we can build a bigger, more effective movement for universal water and sanitation. The next post was uh, 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 I handed over the blog to my boss, Danny Sriskandaraja, who's the CEO of Oxfam Great Britain, uh, who wanted to respond about Oxfam and race. So I'll just read a couple of excerpts from his piece, which is well worth reading. And I'm not just saying that because he's my boss. Um, honest. In the past few weeks, Oxfam's work on anti-racism has attracted some criticism. Various commentators have characterised it as woke posturing or anti-white. I, that is Danny, think they've got it wrong. Let me explain why tackling racism is an integral part of Oxfam's mission. It's almost 80 years since a small group of volunteers motivated by a sense of compassion and justice beyond borders, founded what became Oxfam. The group organised aid for starving citizens in Nazi-occupied Greece and lobbied Winston Churchill's government to allow food imports through the Allied blockade. Those of us working in Oxfam today have been thinking about how we retain our founders' spirit while reimagining this wonderful organisation for this era. A key tenet of our approach is to focus on how we work as much as what we do. And then he says, getting on to the question of racism, put simply, without tackling systemic racism around the world, we cannot end global poverty. Racism makes it harder for people to earn a living, feed their children and put a roof over their heads. This isn't just theory. We've seen it for ourselves. Many of the communities that Oxfam works with around the world have been scarred by exploitative colonial histories, histories that were often shaped by what Kipling called the white man's burden. While colonial legacies are not the only factor that has shaped uneven development around the world, it is important to recognise that many of today's global structures and institutions were formed at a time when power was held predominantly by white people. There's no blame game here. Being white does not make someone a racist. And nor are we saying that white people cannot experience poverty or be discriminated, discriminated against because of the colour of their skin. And it shouldn't need saying, but being anti-racist doesn't make Oxfam anti-white. On the contrary, we want to build an inclusive global movement of people to overcome the injustice of poverty. There are many different and overlapping kinds of discrimination that can hold people back, including those based on race, sexuality, gender identity, religion, physical ability, ethnicity and class or caste. 
Oxfam's approach to fighting poverty is known as intersectional because it seeks to understand how these intersecting factors affect people's experience. Critics have claimed Oxfam is more obsessed with various types of dis discrimination with it than with ending poverty. These are false choices. Meeting our charitable objects of preventing and relieving poverty require us to address the systems of power that keep people in poverty. Our efforts to improve safeguarding, advocate for women's rights, tackle racism and fight poverty are deeply interlinked. So that was Danny setting out the stall for Oxfam's work on anti-racism. And the comments are kind of interesting because they, A, they demonstrate that people don't seem to have read the article. People you know, have a very, people are quite polarised and entrenched on this question already. Um, so I'm not sure that um, we're going to win any, uh, anybody over. Um, but I urge you to read the, uh, read the article, but also have a look at the comments, get a sense of where people are coming from on this. Final post of the week was, um, <clears throat> how does innovation happen in systems? So this was a, you know, I, I scour, skim, to be honest, a lot of papers during the course of an average week. It's part of my job, I think, at Oxfam to sort of focus on what's going on out there and see what people are writing. And this was a paper called Building Better Systems, a green paper on system innovation by Charles Ledbetter and Jenny Winhall. And when I first read it, I, I started it with a fair degree of scepticism because when people talk about systems, there's a lot of hand waving, a lot of, yes, we must all be systems thinkers, we must innovate, you know, um, disrupt, throw everything away, start again. And, and there's very little substance. But um, the paper rather grew on me as I read it. Um, so for, partly because there are some nice case studies, some crunchy case studies, it's very much northern, the the that both the, um, the the base of evidence and the, the the target audience, but I still think it's worth reading, even if you're an international development person. So they had case studies on young adults with learning disabilities in Canada, police reform in Glasgow, or the shift from propeller-driven to jet-propelled passenger aircraft, looking at how these systems innovations happened and trying to unpick the factors that drove it. The second was some nice writing, some thought-provoking analogies. Here's one that jumped out at me. Systems change is a dynamic process in which long periods of relative status, stasis sorry, can suddenly give way to a disruptive vortex, which releases a lot of energy. That energy will be both destructive and constructive. There will be resistance and momentum. Some things will be flying off in all directions and others will be coming together. It's disorienting to be in the middle of this, but that is where the change happens. We think it's like stepping into a washing machine on the spin cycle. I thought that was great. So I'll definitely remember that metaphor next time I'm yeah, in the middle of one of these turbulent periods. You know, you're in the spin cycle. And a particular, the other thing I liked about this piece was that they, they came up with a list of 12 archetypes of the kinds of people you need to bring about change. Uh, there's this kind of systems change, sort of phase change, you know, big transformative changes. Um, and here they are. Um, they pick out four in particular. Entrepreneurs who create transformative ventures which challenge the existing system and open the way to a new different system. And they are the pioneers marking out the territory of the new system. Insider outsiders who recognize the challenge to the existing system they are part of and so open it up to new ideas from outsiders to help a new different system emerge from within the shell of the old. These people who span the boundaries of the current system play a critical role. Conveners who bring together insiders, outsiders and other collaborators 
to create a shared agenda for change. Organisations that seek to play this role must be committed to changing a system and also command the credibility to bring together actors from every level of the system, from the grassroots to senior politicians, universities, foundations, public agencies, such as the Danish Design Centre, and intermediary bodies might play this role. Commission, and then finally, the fourth on their list, commissioners who commission the system of the future to bring it into being. People playing this role are where power and resources come together. So taking those four together, the uh, entrepreneurs, inside outsiders, conveners and commissioners, the decisions they take can redirect resources to create a new system and create the authorising environment in which, it can, in which it can grow to become legitimate. That power can be conventional and derived from traditional hierarchies, yet directed to a new purpose. For example, when Paul Polman, the then chief executive of the Unilever Group, set it radical goals to reduce carbon usage while growing its business. Amsterdam Council is working with the radical economist Kate Rayworth to reimagine the city economy in the terms of her donut model of sustainable development. The power to shift a system can also come from outside these traditional hierarchies, from the new power of social movements, which put governments and companies under pressure to respond to new demands. The sustainable energy, food and waste systems of the future will likely be created by a combination of old and new power, working together as social movements often led by young people that put pressure on governments to respond to the climate emergency. So those are the four leading roles in systems change, but they need a supporting cast. Uh, and they come up with a, a list of eight supporting actors who, who help this systems change process. I won't go into detail because of time, but they are historians, visionaries, consumer innovators. So that's people who say, yes, I'm going to be the first person to buy the electric car or whatever. Um, framework setters. You know, it might be civil servants or policymakers who put in place regulatory frameworks, for example, or, 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 or transform regulation to allow these new innovations to emerge. Scalers who simplify things down and get them going to scale. Um, exiters who get systems out of old paradigms and help wind down outmoded systems. Investors who fund all this stuff. And auditors and evaluators who demonstrate both that the old system isn't working and that the new system is delivering. Now that's interesting as a list, but there was also an interesting conversation on Twitter when I put this up on the blog, which was, that's interesting. Where are the revolutionaries? Where are the disruptors? This is also genteel. You know, these are this is a kind of very polite, you know, consensus-driven uh, process where somebody comes up with a good idea, someone sort of uh, spots it, takes it up, introduces it, scales it up. Everybody says, yes, it works and adopts it. That's a very sort of conflict-free version of innovation. And I think maybe it maybe it's a bit too polite and that there are some uh, there are some messy and unruly bits which are missing from that framework. But that's uh, for Charles and um, uh, uh, sorry um, Jenny to uh, to deal with if they want to. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to stop there and have a great weekend. And may the rain not fall on your head. Bye. <laughs>